is exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me over and over and over again, my friend. I you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Poor. And Bill, here we are again, once more into the breach. Yes, we are. We are. It's cool. a mellow Saturday afternoon. Yeah, there's a festival outside. I know, that's why it took me. <laughs> I wasn't so mellow getting here because I was redirected in traffic. And it's hard, to, it's pretty rough when you get a Langhorn traffic jam. It happens. It does happen. It does happen. Yeah. So you know where the lost art is, by the way? The lost art of directing traffic by hand. You know, the policeman was, you know, or fire police or whoever. There used, to, there used to be an art. Have you ever seen those guys who really do that? Oh, yeah. They still do it in, like, Philly and other places. I mean, like, if you go to certain intersections certain in the city, yeah. Yeah. They're the people who really, I like, you know, the guys that are almost dancing, who enjoy their work. <laughs> this guy... The two guys I went by were not enjoying their work today. No, yeah. yeah. Sometimes, I mean, it's tough work to enjoy in the suburbs. No, I, I don't. People do, and people out here do not respect crosswalks. No, like, like they no. don't. They look at that as optional. Crosswalks are pedestrians are you know on their own. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it's Saturday day live. I mean, we are we're we were going to do Friday Night Lights. You little under the weather, but you have come out of the tomb like Lazarus, right. and you do not stinketh. <laughs> I cleaned up, shaven. I, I rallied. I rallied. You did rally, so here we are. Yeah, yeah, it was not fun. But uh, life in the material world has its has its rough days. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, I think uh, we did not talk about the shooting uh, when it happened this past week, um, the tragic shooting. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny, too. I mean, I, this shows you how little I know and— when I heard that he was shot in the hip, I go, oh, okay, well, you know, you know you'd think wasn't shot in the chest. Well, the one, uh, I guess the one lobbyist was shot in the chest or uh, shot a number of times. But when the congressman, when I heard we shot for the hip, well, okay. Um, but that just shows you how little I know about what a bullet can do. Uh, There's an editorial this weekend in the New York Times. There was a more extensive article, I think it was in Huffington Post last month, about what exactly a bullet does. And uh, so we, our prayers continue to be with all those who were victims. And, uh, you know, it, it, it did give us a national moment of reflection, I think, about, okay, um, this person, you know, uh, a person who has a history of violence. Matter of fact, I, I read something where it's amazing how many mass shooters have a history of domestic violence. So the violence they do to strangers and others often has been perpetrated already on people they're supposed to love and care for. But nonetheless, this person who was a campaign worker or, well, volunteer for Bernie Sanders uh, was someone who was deeply upset about the election of Donald Trump, as many of us are. But uh, something drove him to this act of violence that not only ended his own life, but created much havoc and and suffering for others. Yeah, yeah, it's uh... Yeah, really tragic, and 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 then you know somebody, my friend John Hardy, has said that theodicy, which is the branch of philosophy slash theology that attempts to 
kind of answer the question of how a good God that can be all powerful, all loving, and evil can exist. John's argued, I think, in his dissertation that actually theodicy creates more evil by explaining the inexplicable. And some of the commentary on the shooting uh, oh, in yeah. the media was just it, it's just awful. I mean, yeah. it, it, you know, the, the sort of yeah, I mean, and it's interesting too, and you know, the bringing up of the Kathy Gifford shooter, and this, mean, not the Kathy Gifford, you mean or the the, the uh, not Kathy Gifford, um, Gabby Gifford, Gab, Gabby Gifford, yeah, the Gabby Gifford shooter, and you know, and comparing these things, and yeah, as, a, as if yeah. as if any of these people that do the, I mean, these are disturbed individuals. I mean, they're they're, uh, you know. Yeah, so but, there you but go. But they're not, I mean, uh, a, a paranoid schizophrenic who, that's the person that shot Gabby Gifford, is not the same thing as, I mean, I, I think, yes, they are disturbed individuals, but there is a continuum, I think. And I, I do think that talking about, um, you know, for instance, rhetoric, the anger, it affects the marginal people, okay? And, and to what, you know, what point someone's marginal, for instance, the guy that uh, just was uh, convicted of, how many life consecutive life sentences for killing those uh, who did the shooting, the racial hated shooting um, in the African American church? Uh, the uh, white supremacist who killed those two guys defending uh, that was what in Portland defending uh, women that he one was I guess a Muslim, the other was not, but he had was harassing and two guys, one of um, a military veteran, stood up for these people and end up costing for their, costing their lives. So I do think there's a sense where um, the tenor of negative rhetoric does make certain people on the fringes more susceptible. And, and at what point... What are we talking about fringes? Well, that's actually the fringes of mental health, the fringes of society. Yeah, because I think that that's true. Because I was just listening again to a dialogue with Krista Tippett and Jonathan Haidt about morality and the psychology of morality. And he was, she was talking about civility and flourishing. He was actually saying, well, you have to qualify because people actually, anger's not, like a lot of people that are angry, on so they're actually living productive lives and anger sometimes is challenged in a way that actually helps he's like it doesn't help us as a country <laughs> but right. but people exist on the sort of non-civil fringes and in some ways that anger it, 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 it does some kind of coping mechanism and enables them to function in some weird ways it's it, even though it's directed in weird places and it it, it it as a whole in our society it has a deleterious effect around our capacity to function well as a liberal democracy. But it's weird though for individuals on the political fringes, sometimes they live lives that look pretty, yeah, I'm talking about the most acerbic combative folks in the, in the public square actually aren't always unhinged right. on, 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 a, yeah. on a normal sort of psychological evaluatory kind of, Right, and Plants. I guess, yeah, and you wonder too, for instance, people talk about what people will do in a crowd or a mob that they won't do individually. You know, I, I wonder how much, um, you know, whether it be social media or we all listen to the things that we agree with, how much of that creates kind of a mob, you know, a, a social media mob? I mean, how is there is it possible for there to be a mob mentality perpetuated uh, as you're sitting in the, you know, the quiet of your house looking at a computer screen? Uh, as you, as the same kind of emotions are flamed, and 
you are part of this artificial, but well, not artificial. I guess it's not artificial. It's a it's a different kind of community uh, that the modern world allows us to do. Is it possible to create this kind of you know again what you do in a mob or you know what a mob will do uh, collectively? You know, uh, many of us people would never do individually. Yeah. Is there something about the culture of hate that that um, can produce that? Well, it's interesting too. One, no, this conversation I was listening to. I've listened to it before, but it, it was dated. I mean, it's 2014, I think. Yeah, I think it was 2014. But they were talking about the culture war, and one of the things hate pointed out was that we've been pretty divided in our past. In the 18th century, Federalist, Anti-Federalist, in, in the formation of the country, in the 19th century. Civil war. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> they killed 2% of the American population. Yeah. But he was saying that actually, in general, a point he was making is the kind of thing that happened this week generally doesn't happen much like we don't generally take the culture war to violent levels generally i mean it happens now and again but against elected officials right there's only been i think there's been 17 17 or 19 something Seven, I think yeah. but and even yeah. in general like we don't see we see a lot of violence but the ideologic it's not generally parsed out as ideologically and he was saying that also our culture war kind of perspective he's like you have to realize we're actually coming off a cooperative capacity kind of high. Like that basically coming out of the depression together as a country. And then he said, you know, there's been all kind of research I didn't know about. He says like, if you are a victim of a war as a culture and you go through it together, and he's not talking about like a problematic, ambiguous conflict like Vietnam or something. But he's talking about like World War II, like Pearl right. Harbor. He's like, the people that came out of that, the post-war generation, were just better collaborative people their whole lives in general in civic society. Like the, the, the research shows that like going through something like that, these kinds of events. And he also thinks there's some things probably related to our identity over against communism. Yeah, uh, the Cold War probably had yeah, a similar and, and some immigration patterns, which is like, one parenthetically is like, it wasn't great for the Jews during World War II. He, he hates a Jew, but he's like, but you have to say normatively there was some homogenizing uh, in American society, too, immigration patterns, surviving a war together, depression, going through communism, and then rebuilding a society that those people like continued those. You look at Mueller, right? Like a guy like that. Like, um, is he that generation? He's a little before that, but he, he served in Vietnam, right? So he he would have grown his parent, his most likely his you know his parents or uncles served in World War Two. Yeah, and you just look at you know people that you know it's Brokaw's greatest generation kind of thing. They, they did have a kind of capacity, it seems like, for a more collaborative. You know, so Hate's point was like that, that our sort of culture were hyper partisanship uh, is coming off a season, uh, like a relative season for decades in American democracy of actually kind of functional collaboration because right. one generation, because the, the people that were conditioned to collaborate and be collegial because of some shared sociological experiences, they were still running things. Yeah. Do you think maybe a parallel from in the religious community, in spite of the problems of denominations, denominations brought people together. It created cooperation, created connections. Um, you know, a lot of people went to the same, you know, went to the colleges, went to the seminaries, you know, and, and, you know, Southern, for instance, I mean, some, for instance, Southern Presbyterians would be gathered around their memories of a certain camp or, you know, certain groups. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that created a kind of, there was a kind of, um, culture and friendship across theological boundaries If they had friend, you know, there'd be friendships that would be made because we went to college together. We went to seminary together. Um, 
But I think with the breakdown of denominations in there, I think there are attempts to reformulate stuff. But there, I think that, you know, there, there aren't those kind of connections among the Christian community as well. Every, we, you know, we are a wide group of people trying to recreate communities. I mean, sometimes just look at the different religious communities on social media, the subgroups. It's fascinating. People trying to, how many different adjectives they put in front of it. Like, uh, you're, you're a part of several of those. I am part of several of those. That fascinate me. Well, you know, it's kind of just, I, I find it interesting what people are, are thinking and talking about. I, See, you told me the other day I didn't join anything, so I'm trying to join things. Yeah, you've been reprimanded in several of those groups. I well, that's, that's but everything I've been a part of. Exa- I've, I've exa- I just want to say that, like, if to those of you who are listening, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you, you know who you are. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's kind of like, you know, like, uh, well, I can't remember what movie is Woody Allen said, uh, so I'm not an atheist, I'm just part of the loyal opposition. <laughs> exactly, I like that. <laughs> so, um, this, uh, I, I, you know, and, I, and it's made me stop and think, about some of my own rhetoric. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I think I have no problem, again, Donald Trump, I think, is an enemy of the people. I really do. I mean, yeah. Well, I, so there you, I mean, the rhetoric is... is but, is, I mean, is, I think in terms of some of the most important... I think some of the most important institutions that hold us together as a republic are under, under attack, and a lot of it circles around him and his leadership. I mean, let, I, I'd rather... Let's stop. I would say that he... That his political practice is in tension with democratic norms. Like, I mean, that doesn't mean necessarily he's, he's an enemy of the people. Although I do think, all right, well, he's he is a harmful force for our democracy. But I mean, but this is the thing too. Like, so you think about like in group, out groups. Like, you know, hates work on morality, which we decided to talk about this. I was revisiting some of that. Hey, talks about everybody agrees on compassion and fairness, but then liberals. It, it, think about like group loyalty respect for authority and sanctity liberals just can't think of those things as moral right and so what, yeah, and i think that's a huge problem with, with you know, it's like, interesting he used an example yeah, in 2014 yeah. he said let's think of words like wall right this is 2014 now i was trying to think about that no as as a person who's left of center politically would building a wall on parts of the border be inherently problematic and i was trying to think about well i mean okay so it would if you are and and no borders, open border kind of no countries shouldn't have borders. Well, then anything like that is problematic. But most people in this country, no, you need to have, yes believe in secure borders. Although right? it's interesting because I heard an interview with the libertarian econo- economist on free economics who said that the biggest threat to prosperity globally for the poor is borders. Because somebody the, from, for the poor for the poor, yeah, because yeah. someone in Haiti could could twenty times their productivity if they were in, Absolutely, no. yeah. So like, yeah. but but most of us just think, okay. The, Countries are something worth preserving, and so you have well, to— Well, and the border problem is very much, you know, I mean, years ago we talked about the— I mean, you used to talk about the coming <laughs> the coming disparity between the haves and have-nots. I remember hearing talks about that 30, 40 years ago. Well, that's that's now. I mean, so much of the problems on our southern border is because of the violence— and it's and and the poverty of right, the right. hemisphere. So, but anyway, but, 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 but your point, he, he, ahead, said, he said when people say wall, when you say wall, liberals say knock it down, and so because liberals tend to when they take these morality surveys, they ask like who do you care about most? Like people in your own community, people in your own country, and people in the broader world. And liberals always say they care more about people in the broader world than people in their country or their community because they're cosmopolitan. And 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 for to care about countrymen or neighbor over 
the global citizen, right? Is this is why, like, hate said, you know, like you, you can have like uh, people that you know, like that actually think it, and could justify moral grounds. It's better to care about poor children in other countries than your own kids. It's points. I mean, like, it's right. That's there's a, there's the whole activist syndrome that neglects their own family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so I think some of so some of the. Trump sort of appeal is because certain kinds of things like group loyalty, uh, you know, respect for authority and sanctity are things that liberals are just almost would consider immoral. Yeah, but I, I don't think the man respects authority. Well, yeah, but his rhetoric is one that is one is a rhetoric of, of strong men. Yeah, right. But, but, but strong men sometimes keep societies together. I mean, what, what's interesting is how do you get from our evolutionary origins, like it's not hard to explain how a pride of lions hunt together or even how a nuclear family provides for each other. It's really hard to explain how primates, uh, which are, who are not immediately related, can walk around a city like New York and there's not violence all the time. Like it's, in general, like, and some of it is authority, not, not authoritarianism, but, but, but there is this sense in which these things that make society stable, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that certain people in the culture feel like these things are eroding. And so somebody like Donald Trump, who is an authoritarian in personality, like just, you know, kind of yield to me. And it's really interesting. There was a piece in, I think, The Atlantic about the memorandum and the origin of the memo. And basically the guy was arguing that the way Donald Trump tends to function is a way the way a 19th century business person or politician He's like Grover Cleveland had like 13 people in his whole White House staff. Like, and so you don't need memos, right? Like, right. and Trump had about that many people running the whole Trump corporation because right. it's, all, it's all these little LLCs. So, like, when you know everybody like that, you don't have, but, but memos take or become significant as bureaucracies get bigger by scale, by necessity, and you have conflicting opinions. And so, documenting conflicting opinions for problem solving, for redress and things like that becomes something that's important. Donald Trump is a guy that kind of likes to do old school business where you got a handful of people in the know. He's never been publicly traded. It's not accountable to board. And why would I need to write down memos? I just pull you in and say, Hey, Hey, you like your job? I mean, you want to stay on? I mean, <laughs> I, you know, so it's just, it's just interesting that, that like so much of this stuff is psychological almost like, like you could you, that the appeal of Trump, I think, for a certain segment is is the appeal of like certain things that that at their best do hold society together yeah and the fear of their erosion yeah but I, you know i do i think it's a complicated thing i think too that because some of the people i mean it's funny it's how many authoritarians have this anti-authority in other words at some levels the authority is myself and uh, I think it's it is psychologically and socially complicated what the appeal of Donald Trump and well also authority can be in tension with the rule of law in the sense of I think the rule of law often it, it definitely defers to fairness and even uh, on good days compassion right so like but so sometimes like what we try to do is take authority and institutionalize it in liberal societies through constitutional democratic practice. Right. So the authority is not one person. It's in a shared rule well, of law. That's actually, yeah. I mean, that's the suspicion of the strong man that the founding fathers had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so when I say, when I'm, when I say that uh, allegiance to a strong man in our society is something we, our whole constitution uh, was devised to, to fight against. And, uh, 
And I think that's what's problematic. Uh, and I also think the fact is um, the feeding frenzy uh, on both sides just keeps us from doing important things, ignoring important issues. Uh, we're sending 4,000 more troops to Afghanistan. Uh, no one's talking about that. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of things that are problematic. But um, at, the same, at the same time, as, as Christians, it was, I read something interesting. I actually posted on Facebook from, our teach, from the teacher. Our teacher, Thomas Hollick. <laughs> the teacher. Okay. The teacher, yeah. Um, he says this. When uh, Jesus spoke about loving one's enemies, he used a fairly provocative statement that was intended to arouse consciences lulled by stereotypically repeated cliches and half-truths about people who are different and to unsettle our seeming certainties about who we and they are and how we are and they are, what we are supposed to think about foreigners and how we are to treat them. If we have felt the need to replace Jesus' exacting requirement with the softer word tolerance, doesn't that indicate that we're still running away from what Jesus expects from his followers? And what really struck me in terms of, you know, um, what does it mean to practice a love for enemies in this in this day and time? And, um, and what does it mean to, you know, I mean, right now, most of us would be happy for tolerance. <laughs> but it, it struck me that uh, Hollick is reminding us that we're called to something even more radical. But yeah, and also he talks about uh, John Locke's famous essay on toler tolerance and basically how it, it requires a kind of Protestant homogeneity for right. it to work. <laughs> yeah, no, he, it's a really fascinating chapter about the breakdown uh, you know, that that's just not going to work in the world we live in right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's something to that. And I think that may be, may, that may be in part why, it, going back to your original statement, the kind of consensus, if you would, the, um, the coming together in the defeat of fascism and communism, that goodwill. And again, let's also remember that that may have been going on for you know, a lot of white America, but, you know. Sure. No, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. yeah but that um, it's interesting. I just have been rewatching re Ken Burns' The Civil War. And I'm, I'm struck about how um, the inability to compromise, you know, someone, I think it may have been uh, Shelby Foote, who was, who was, a, was a late great Shelby Foote, an interesting, interesting life too. Uh, um, but how Shelby Foote, uh, said, you know, the brilliance of the, you know, Americans are always talking, we, we don't compromise, we don't compromise. He says our whole brilliance of our system has been compromised from the beginning. He said, but we just couldn't work, we just couldn't compromise this and, you know, the carnage and the violence and in some ways, the unresolved issues of civil wars are still part of what's lifting his head in this divided country that we're in now. Again, it's not that's that can be simplistic, but there are some things that never quite got resolved and um and I think the breakdown of the of the last great consensus we had as a country is part of what's going on right now, yeah, and I wonder how much of it is like also just global socioeconomic realities. I was rereading some stuff from Jonathan Sachs' book, The Dignity of Difference, which is Great book. Yeah, it's a great book. And important, he said, an important book. Yeah, he said, bad things happen when the pace of change exceeds our ability to change. Yeah. And events move faster than our understanding. It is then that we feel the loss of control over our lives. Anxiety creates fear. Fear leads to anger. Anger breeds violence. And violence, when combined with weapons of mass destruction, becomes a deadly reality. 
The greatest single antidote to violence is conversation, speaking our fears, listening to the fears of others, and in that sharing of vulnerability, discovering a genesis of hope. Hmm. I mean, I think that's, and you know, I think it's interesting because the two populist candidates, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, were addressing a sense in a lot of the country that things are changing beyond our control, uh, which leads to anxiety right. and fear. And I think that, 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 I mean, dealing with those realities in a way that, that where, yeah, where we can come to places that are conversational instead of confrontational. And the interesting thing, I mean, um, could Bernie Sanders have governed? I don't know. That's an interesting question. I don't know if he could have. I mean, can anybody govern right well, now? I mean, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's, the, I mean yeah. that's the question. I mean, like, can, who can govern? I mean, yeah, that was one of the things that, uh, there was an interesting interview with Joe Biden last, uh, this week. And uh, he was talking about uh, his relationship with John McCain. He says, John McCain and I will yell at each other. We disagree about other things. Uh, you know, we go at each, we would go at each head, head to head. He said, but if I called John McCain and said, hey, I need you to meet me in St. Louis tomorrow, he would drop everything he had to and be there. And he said, that's what's lacking right now in the current Congress. <laughs> Matter of fact, of our ironies, Newt Gingrich this week, who was saying some horrific things that are even extreme for him, uh, when John McCain, when Newt Gingrich was elected the House of Representatives, uh, Speaker of the House, uh, John McCain told Joe Biden, well, the Khmer Rouge has taken over the Congress. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's this lack of civility, uh, uh, you know, uh, this most recent version of it uh, certainly has its roots uh, in the last 20 years. It's not, it's not a new phenomenon, that's for sure. But it's not getting better. You know, one of the things, again, I... Uh, I was convalescing. I was in the Civil War again. And uh, it's something that what you just read uh, remind me of something else. Some people watch like The Notebook or Die Hard. Or I just go back to Civil War documentaries. I like that. Well, I was in pain, so I felt, <laughs> I felt like I should suffer a bit. Uh, anyway, but Shelby Foote said again that one of the biggest problems why there was so much carnage in the Civil War was that technology had changed. Uh, but these people learned tactics from the Napoleonic Wars. And so the weaponry, the bullets, uh, everything had changed. And he said they realized early on, <laughs> he has a sweet southern accent, they realized early on that the old things didn't work. That didn't prevent them from continuing to use them. And thousands of men died because of their inability to adjust. And I think there's something about that, the trouble that we can even see in front of us. We all see what's going on right now. This isn't working. This isn't good for us. But are we going to keep using the same tactics and uh, and lead to more distrust and, and destructive things? Uh, it's interesting. We have this kind of sense of inevitability that, gosh, the security that we have, all the all the rights we have, the relative prosperity we have, that's, that nothing can change that. But uh, just a cursory look at history can tell us that is not the case at all for anything. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think to me, at least, I'm, I'm going to try. See, I've been listening to Shelby for <laughs> my southern accent's coming. I'm going to try. I'm going to, I think, uh, what does it mean for me to consciously um, to try to love my enemies? That doesn't mean to support them. It doesn't mean certainly to not call things wrong. I do think we have a moral obligation to speak out, particularly this time. I, you know, my, my more political engagement right now than it's ever been is in part because of my children and my grandchildren, and I feel a responsibility to them. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting because hate would say that basically our morality is not influenced by reason, but by emotion and intuition. 
So we don't, when we say like, well, hey, we're going to hunker down and try that. Like basically he thinks that that there's a sort of futility to that in, the, in that rationality doesn't change people's morality in his experience. I and mean, this guy's done exhaustive research, like as much as anybody in the well, field. Come, 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 let's reason together doesn't work with people who don't have a heart for it to work. I think exactly what he's saying. Well, well and also when we say come, let's reason together, the together part is like, we're always doing it with the tribe and in his, right, no, his I'm research not. is that basically when people get engaged in public debates, the kind of reasons they give are not about convincing the other person of something important. It's to say to their tribe that I'm still part of the team. So he's, uh, he, right, no, yeah. he gets consulted on messaging all the time. Right. And he's like, usually by liberals. And they say, well, how do we get the right message on climate change? And he's like, well, no, no relationships are change people. So like the best thing maybe you could do is the messenger. Like if you get a general with five stars to say climate change, really right. It, it threatens something you care about. That's why the scientific community really embraced. I was uh, part of a national board and the scientific community embraced uh, the religious community over the environmental issue. It, right. Right. Well, uh, yeah, because we, a, yeah, we need to get the, we need to get religious people in to get this thing changed and uh, it, a lot it, it had a profound impact yeah know? yeah yeah, yeah. And it, it, no, I, I think you're absolutely right and so part of you know it's interesting so um one of the things and this will be uh, uh kind of maybe ties together later on in the book Halleck says um he goes he goes through the problem of the metaphor of father for god and he, and he does you know in his both as a therapist and as a catholic priest he says i know <laughs> why that's problematic for a lot of different reasons. He then says, but maybe one of the most important reasons to keep the metaphor is because if God is our father, then it means we're all brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you choose your friends, but you don't get to choose your siblings. And uh, that that really, I guess at some levels, when you're called to love your enemy, that immediately begins to deconstruct whether or not they actually can be your enemy if you're loving them. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's interesting one of the things Haight said in this interview was that it's great. He quoted Jefferson and the importance of like fiction and stories. He said, because like beautiful actions or beautiful descriptions of reality tend to dilate the breast and elevate the sentiments. And I think that that is absolutely true. I think that people, that when we see stories and experience them that humanize all of reality for us, so that make it's harder to, to categorize into black and white and good guys and bad guys. And we actually are moved deeply by, a, by the power of a beautiful story that taps into the truth of reality. I mean, this is why von Balthasar thinks that one of the pathologies of modernity is we split the good, the true, and the beautiful. These are kind of, we, we think the true oh, yeah. should be sort of just you know, in, in a Cartesian yeah, yeah, kind of, right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that, as much as anything, is we need artists. I mean, because von Balthasar says that, you know, people come to Christian faith not first because of kind of naked reason, but because of the beauty of the cross. And then there's a story there that's true of, like, somehow every memoir anybody likes, right, is like, well, I kind of hit rock bottom in some way, and that led to death and resurrection. So yeah. those kind of things yeah. help us die to things that probably dehumanize us. Yeah, all right, so... I'm going to pray for President Trump tomorrow by name. I like that. That's how I'm going to try to do this. That's huge.
Why can't we live together? 